this technology development and policy push is going to play out over a 30-year period. And our ability to see forward much further than perhaps a decade is pretty limited. And so we're going to learn a lot over the next five to 10 years about which technologies have matured up well and don't need any support any further, and those that are struggling and new ones that have come into the mix that policymakers need to encourage and support. Welcome to Electric Perspectives, a podcast that explores how America's electric companies are working to deliver the reliable, affordable, secure, and clean energy that powers our economy and our everyday lives. The show is brought to you by EEI, the Edison Electric Institute, which represents all U.S. investor-owned electric companies. I'm your host, Brian Real. Our path toward a resilient clean energy future depends on new and developing carbon-free technologies. The Institute for the Energy Transition, or IET, was launched earlier this year to advance the commercialization of breakthrough technologies, which will allow electric companies to reach net zero emissions goals while keeping customer reliability and affordability front and center. IET will build off the foundation set by the Carbon-Free Technology Initiative, or CFTI. On today's episode, Jerry Anderson, who retired after a distinguished career leading DTE Energy and now chairs the Institute for the Energy Transition, and Eric Holdsworth, EEI's Managing Director of Clean Energy and Environmental Policy, will discuss the efforts of EEI and our partners to accelerate the pace for research, development, demonstration, and deployment of new carbon-free technologies, the vision behind IET and the work underway now, the gaps that remain in federal policy to support commercialization of these technologies, and more. Jerry and Eric, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brian. It's great to be here. Yeah, glad to join you as well. Eric, can you remind listeners about the carbon-free technologies that E&I and our members are advancing as our industry moves toward net zero emissions? Sure, Brian. Happy to. And in fact, E&I and members are really looking at the full suite of technologies out there that are both available now and are being developed. But they really would fall into perhaps four or five key areas. Long-duration energy storage, hydrogen and this related fuels, carbon capture, utilization, and storage, advanced nuclear, and of course, wind and solar. If you're interested in learning more about CFTI, we actually did an episode in April 2022, and we'll put a link to that one in the summary. And Jerry, as the chair of IET, can you provide us with an overview of what this new venture is and what IET aims to accomplish over the next couple of years? Yeah, well, you know, Eric mentioned the the critical technologies uh, that we're tracking, but those technologies Technologies are really on the move now across the country and across the globe. There are intense research and development efforts, and large-scale deployment uh, is beginning as well. And as that plays out, it's just really vital that our industry and its leadership and the policymakers, uh, both in our states and and in Washington, uh, that we all stay up to speed on not only the technology developments, but the commercial readiness and the, the cost effectiveness of these various technologies so that we can be ready to deploy the best technologies at large scale at the right time. And in the interim, um, it's going to be key that our industry play a role of piloting these technologies, bringing them to scale so that we can drive them down the cost curve is going to require that we pick the right technologies and pilot them. Uh, and then take them to commercial deployment. But you know, keeping keeping up with all of the technology and commercial developments is a real challenge. Uh, just so much is happening on so many fronts. 
And so the goal of the Institute for Energy Transition is fundamentally about education and awareness uh, to keep the leadership of our industry abreast of the most commercially ready and technically promising uh, new technologies out there and to do the very same for policymakers. As, as I said, uh, a lot going on, so that's no small task, but that is the goal of the Institute. And sequentially, it sounds important. Everyone's looking at ways to accelerate this clean energy transition to be thinking about those future potential hurdles, whether they're regulatory or financial, so that some of this this trouble spotting and, and problem solving can happen while these technologies are maturing. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And you know, on many fronts, there are no clear winners. You know, uh, long duration energy storage is a good example. So many different approaches from mechanical to chemical and battery and gaseous. And within each of those categories, varying approaches that are being experimented with across the globe. And, you know, it can be a bit dizzying, as I said, to keep track of it all. But it's really important that we do that. And it's really important that we be able to filter down to the technologies that uh, we need ultimately to adopt and bear down on. So, as I said, that's that's the goal of, of the work that we're doing. And the new initiative builds off the foundation set by CFTI, which was launched in 2021. And I know that's something that both you, Jerry, and Eric were heavily involved in and continue to be involved in with our member companies and with leading energy, environmental, and technology partners. How does IET advance the progress made by CFTI? And in what ways are, I guess, the initiatives different or are they still complementary? Well, I'll jump into that one. And then, Eric, you can can add too. But you know, CFTI was and still is uh, fundamentally a push with policymakers to support the development of these key technologies that will be critical to the clean energy transition. And without that policy support, they will not make it across the goal line. You know, the IRA and the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill benefited from that work of the Carbon Free Technology Initiative. That isn't the last work that needs to be done on that front, but boy, it was important work. As I said, that that differs from the IET and that the IET then is focused on understanding the technologies that that, that policy support uh, will push out into the marketplace and readying the industry to deploy those technologies and keeping us fully current on their evolution, the early stage development and so forth. So they're very complementary. Uh, but they are different. One fundamentally directed at engaging policymakers and making sure the supportive policies in place, the other in educating the industry and policymakers on what's emerging from that whole process and what's most promising. And then Eric, does that mean that the CFTI stakeholders are still working together on whatever the, the next iteration of their policy focuses are? Well, absolutely, Brian. And I think Jerry summarized the sort of distinctions between the two and their complementary nature quite well. But of course, CFTI, much like IET, is not a a one-year program, uh, right? To develop these clean energy technologies that we're talking about, it's going to take at least a decade, right? That's a normal, uh, maybe even expedited uh, development in the R&D cost and and development curve. So that work is going to continue. CFTI, Although we've had a lot of initial successes, uh, are continuing to update our recommendations for advancing these technologies to take into account gains made, uh, but there's still work to be done, right? And that is going to continue. And the goal of CFTI is to, uh, on that technology policy side, kind of keep the pedal to the metal and keep pressing the issue so that ultimately all the recommendations that are needed can be enacted and these technologies can be commercially deployable 
uh, by the 2030s uh, so that members can uh, start to address the, the remaining parts of their net zero transition. And as always, individual companies or individual organizations can't really do these big picture projects all alone. So Jerry, who are the other stakeholders working with EEI to support the research, demonstration, development, and deployment of carbon-free techs, and also just parallel to the the work that's going on with IET? And what kind of knowledge and experience do they bring in to help complement the expertise that EEI has in-house? So for the, uh, the IET, we have pulled in the Department of Energy uh, as a partner. Obviously, they play a key role in funding the deployment of these technologies. We've also pulled in EPRI uh, and the national labs, both who have deep technical expertise and commercial insights that we can draw upon. So they will both uh, be important partners. More recently, we have struck a partnership with the Long Duration Energy Storage Council, or LDES. They are a group formed around what's going to be a critical technology uh, to enable greater renewable deployment. We've got to get some of these long duration storage technologies matured up. And it's an area, as I mentioned earlier, that's is seeing intense R&D and deployment. And so they're an important partner for us. We're also working with a couple of consulting firms. Uh, McKinsey and Company has been working with us on tracking the technologies, uh, taking stock of their current development and their sort of commercial readiness. So for example, they did a series of presentations on hydrogen uh, earlier this year for industry CEOs. Just a few days ago, did one on long duration storage. And uh, they, I see us continue to work with them, not, not only across this year, but across the decade. And then ICF is working with IET uh, in a different role. Uh, they're working, working with us to track our progress in driving down carbon, both in our sector and across other sectors in the United States and across the globe. So they're working with us, putting a lot of the data that's you know being used, for example, by the United Nations in our hands on a timely basis so that we can really track what's happening across the world and learn from it. So long way of saying we got a lot of partners. I'm sure we'll draw in more uh, over time, but that's the group we're working with currently. Sounds like a powerful team. Switching gears here a little bit, we often talk about the bipartisan infrastructure law and the clean energy tax credits provided by the Inflation Reduction Act on the podcast because these pieces of legislation are going to have a profound impact on the energy transition. In the case of carbon-free technologies, what kind of impact can we expect from those bills, Jerry? I spent about a year and a half of my life focused heavily on the Inflation Reduction Act and the bipartisan infrastructure bill, and we really started that work at, at EEI as soon as the transition to President Biden occurred. Uh, And I can only say that those two pieces of legislation are even more powerful than I ever understood when we were working on them. And we knew they were gonna be critical, Uh, but they are transformative uh, for our clean energy efforts. I've had uh, people from overseas express that they, they see these bills as genius or so beneficial and they really are going to be transformative for our drive toward clean energy here in the U.S. So really happy they passed. But I will tell you this, they're transformative for our sector, but there is a lot of activity outside of our sector as well. So for example, on hydrogen, uh, certainly going to drive our deployment of clean hydrogen over time. But actually, we're going to see the first movement on that front, probably out of the chemical, petrochemical, steel, and a handful of other sectors that are currently deploying hydrogen, 
but we'll now move to clean hydrogen and they can help drive hydrogen down the cross curve and we will benefit from that. I'll give you another example. Uh, I sit on the board of an agri-industry company. I sat through a board call uh, about a week ago that was dominated by discussion of the impacts of the Inflation Reduction Act on the agriculture industry. Things like renewable diesel, biodiesel, and carbon capture and storage related to ethanol and low carbon index ethanol production, and a host of other things that the agriculture industry is driving into, uh, but, but now more powerfully because the Inflation Reduction Act improves the economics. And so long way to say the, these two acts are a big deal for our industry, but actually a big deal for the drive for clean energy across a whole host of industries, which is great for our country, I think. And I know you both track a lot of international policy conversations as well. And it seems as though there's been renewed focus in Europe and seeing how they can make similar policy moves to help support the deployment of more clean energy overseas. No, that, that's true. And I think part of that is that they've, they've seen the intense interest uh, in investment here in the United States because we see the legislation is supportive to the early stage economics of these technologies. And look, jumping into these technologies isn't a low risk venture. It's risky. So to have supportive policy in, in the form of incentives, it makes the United States a place where people want to go to work right now. And I think Europe is looking at that and saying, we may need a little of that ourselves. Yeah, and I think Japan is also uh, taking some similar steps, right? People, I mean, I think people have understood, right? Initially, there was a very negative reaction. Oh, this is the United States, you know, trying to perhaps outcompete people. But I think now countries understand, right, that to really advance these technologies requires investments of this scale that Jerry was talking about, right? These bills, IIJA and IRA, and to a lesser extent, the Chips and Sciences Act, are indeed as Jerry said, revolutionary in their potential impact on the industry, completely changing some of the economics on these technologies, on hydrogen and carbon capture and storage. You know, I just look at some of the, the tax credits that are in there that have now been broadened to all forms of clean energy. Now, that alone uh, is, a, is a very important development for helping advance these technologies and really leveling out the playing field. Um, so I think other countries are realizing that this is the approach, that we all need to be doing this, right? It isn't that only one country should, but really everybody in many ways needs to be undertaking this kind of effort if we're really going to advance these technologies and get them to commercial employability. It's a huge challenge uh, because it's what we're doing here times 197 countries around the world, really, that you have to get this to. And to go back briefly to CFTI, Eric, I recall you saying in one of our previous interviews that there were quite a few recommendations made through the CFTI partnership to identify and fill some of the federal policy gaps that have been identified. Has the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law and the Inflation Reduction Act addressed all of these gaps or many of these gaps? And if not, what else is needed to ensure these technologies can be ready by the early 2030s and, and beyond, which is kind of what a lot of the focus has been on, a lot of renewables being deployed this decade, but really looking for that next 24-7 carbon-free technology that's going to be ready? Yeah, no, great question. Uh, and I think it really builds on what we were just talking about. And in fact, a lot of what was in the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law and uh, the Inflation Reduction Act were at the heart of the CFTI recommendations. CFTI itself called for a massive increase in DOE's budget, and that's exactly what happened, and called for the creation of particular office focusing on clean energy and 
Now we have the Office of Clean Energy Demonstrations. What was interesting to me, uh, right, the, uh, these production tax credits, uh, one of our big calls across all the different technologies that CFTI is working on, where the staffing up of DOE, this creation of an office to focus on it, the need uh, to come up with a hub program. And now we're seeing that with these hydrogen hubs that are really designed not just to prove up hydrogen and different ways of producing hydrogen, but carbon capture and storage and bringing on renewable energy, uh, storage issues, uh, advanced nuclear and other nuclear plants. So how do you tie some of these different pieces together? End users, as Jerry was talking about on hydrogen, right, who may be the potential early users of hydrogen, maybe that's produced by utilities. So these hubs are pretty revolutionary. And the production tax credits, another area that we called for, again, across all technologies, the need to have a clean energy tax credit is exactly what you've seen that were in, was enacted uh, in those two bills. And then, of course, a wide range of individual programs. I, I don't want to belabor that, but I would just you know note right over $5 billion on carbon capture and storage demonstration uh, and, and R&D projects, more than $8 billion on hydrogen uh, tied to the hubs, uh, but also hydrogen and ammonia and its development uh, and deployment. Uh, more than $3 billion on advanced nuclear, both on um, fission and fusion technology. The list goes on and on, uh, but many of the top recommendations of CFTI were ultimately enacted. And I think that's why that bill, go back to what Jerry said, is really so impactful and revolutionary in what it's doing. The scale is incredible. Now, as I said, there's still a lot more work to be done. And I think Jerry touched on this as well, right? We're at the beginning. And it's not that you do everything in one year and with one bill. Now you have to go forward and implement and continue to move forward. And that's why CFTI continues to work on revised recommendations for advancing these technologies and making sure that we actually implement them. And IET's got this complementary role of helping tell that story. And I think, as Jerry said at the beginning, keeping people aware of where we are on these development curves and cost curves and what's the status of these technologies on an ongoing basis so that it's easy for stakeholders, key officials, you know, and obviously power sector executives uh, to be able to find that information. I was going to offer one more reflection on the development of this policy, and that is that uh, I came back from discussions with legislators in Washington in 2018 and 2019, actually fairly depressed on the state of understanding, because the general sense then was that we just need to deploy a lot of wind and solar and some batteries and can transition the whole economy to renewable energy, and that'll take care of things. And those of us who had studied the issue knew that that was absolutely not the case, that there was much more on the technology development front that was going to be needed to complete the trip. You fast forward from 2019, when I was depressed about the state of understanding, to 2022, when we pass legislation that enables an entire suite of technologies that will be needed for the clean energy transition. That is a pretty stunning transformation in the understanding and actions of policymakers over a pretty short period. And I give a lot of credit to the people who work the Carbon-Free Technology Initiative for helping with the education. But I also think that the environmental community and others uh, were realizing the same thing, that we are not gonna finish this trip with a couple of technologies. It's gonna take a lot, it's a big lift, and we better figure it out. And so when we were advocating for the Inflation Reduction Act, for example, we were right on top of the advocacy of groups like the Environmental Defense Fund and the Nature Conservancy and the Clean Air Task Force and the Center for Climate and Energy Solutions, because I think we all saw the same thing. Um, we, we better jump on these technologies and get them developed or we're going to stall. So 
it was a great outcome. And as Eric said, a transformative step for the country, uh, but like you never get it completely right in one move. So there'll be things we learn and more policy development uh, and technology development needed, but a powerful first step. Just one other thing I wanted to add to all of this, and I think it touches on Jerry's last point, right? You don't always get it exactly right. There's always more work to be done. The one area that still needs to be addressed, I mean, there's a lot of exciting developments going on as we're talking about with the clean energy technologies, their development, their potential future. But we, we also need to be able to connect these things to the grid. And so uh, really moving forward on finding a more rational approach to permitting and siting reform in that area while, you know, making sure that it's still a process that respects uh, all current statutes is going to be important. Because if it takes a decade to connect anything to the grid, it, it you know, that's just going to add more time and delay uh, and really retard the transition. So important that, you know, that's uh, moving forward on the technologies, but here's yet another issue we need to also tackle. And I know that's something that folks are working on this year. And Jerry, imagine based on all your experience in the industry that you would agree with the current state of deciding and permitting and some of the challenges that Eric mentioned, just I'm sure you have even had probably particular projects in mind. I know we read about, there was a speaking as we record, there was a project just approved that I think was 15 years before it got the final approval for a new transmission line. So it's, those are some pretty wild numbers when you read them. You know, transmission siting is particularly difficult and it's going to be uh, there's a wide agreement that we're going to need to invest in a lot of transmission to connect uh, these new resources, especially the dispersed renewable resources to the grid. That isn't the only area of siting and permitting that we are going to need to stay on top of. So, and I will tell you, if the siting and permitting uh, stalls or becomes too complicated, the entire clean energy transition stalls. So, for example, we're going to need to deploy an intense amount of renewable energy, wind and solar. Uh, over the next 10 to 15 years. And we're going to need to do that not only for the current transformation of the electric grid that's underway, but for the electric vehicles that are going to be ramping up so hard during that period, and for what people anticipate will be clean hydrogen production. All of that's going to take, as I said, an intense amount of investment in renewable energy, wind and solar. But we're already facing growing pushback on the siting of renewables. It's a sort of a form of green, not in my backyard. Uh, and we've got to address this. I can tell you in Michigan, it is very difficult now, a decade in, to site wind projects uh, due to pushback. And yet we're early in the transition uh, here in Michigan, just as the country is. Solar, we're seeing states now run into solar siting resistance. And yet those states are early in the process of deploying solar. We're gonna to have to learn to grapple with this as a country. If we want clean energy, we're gonna to have to site it. And if we wanna connect the clean energy to the grid, we're gonna to have to site the transmission. And there's one other siting issue I think is worth mentioning is that all of these technologies depend on critical minerals. And today, 80% plus of the critical minerals come through China. I think everybody has woken up to the fact that that is a national security vulnerability analogous to the vulnerability we had when we sourced such a large portion of our oil from the Middle East back in the 1980s, for example, in the 1970s. We have got to have a more diverse sourcing of these critical minerals, and we have got to do production of critical minerals here in our own country. We've got to be willing to do that. That means we've got to be ready to site mines and undertake mining activity. We can't think that somehow all the mining should be done in places like Peru or the Congo. 
look, we think it's so important. We got to get after it ourselves and be willing to do it in the right way. A whole range of siting and permitting activities that we're going to need to get our arms around to make the trip to net zero. But that's just part of Part of the challenge, one of many challenges that, that we'll need to take on, and I'm sure we'll work our way through it. We know that electric companies and EEI's member companies, including DT Energy, where you led as CEO for a decade and then as executive chairman for several years after that, Jerry, have ambitious clean energy goals, and some even include reaching net zero emissions. How critical will it be to deploy technologies like nuclear, hydropower, battery electric storage, and carbon capture to reach these goals? And I, I imagine that there's a lot of focus on making sure that there's a suite of tools available because every company in every region is probably going to have a, a different path to clean. Yeah, well, I mentioned earlier that I was somewhat depressed in 2018 and 19 on the understanding amongst policymakers about what it would take to finish the trip to net zero. And look, uh, wind and solar are going to be absolutely vital for that transition. We are going to deploy a lot of it. Uh, short duration batteries will be important to help us deal with you know, intraday intermittency, but they will not get us there. Uh, that I can assure you, especially as we transition more and more of the economy to the electric grid. And so if we're going to make the trip, and everybody who has studied this, I'd say in a serious and fair-minded way, if we're going to make the trip, we're going to need zero carbon sources of baseload power. And these small nuclear reactors would be certainly be a version of that, uh, as could uh, carbon capture and storage tied to something like a gas turbine. Uh, we are going to need long duration energy storage uh, to balance, I'd say, the daily to weekly energy imbalances. And we're also going to need some form of large scale what I'd call season shifting energy storage. Storage that can take energy from the summer into the winter. We do that today with natural gas. We put four and a half trillion cubic feet of natural gas in the ground in this country every year and pull it out across the winter to heat homes and generate power. That is a massive battery. We tried to replace that with chemical batteries. We would mine the world inside out. We're going to need something else to play that role that can literally take solar and wind energy from the summer and the fall into December and January. Those technologies don't exist today. And, um, but as, as we've been talking, we're going to need them. And uh, the modeling shows that. And so uh, we'll do a lot in the interim by heavy, heavy investment in batteries, solar and wind. Better be ready with the other ones to finish the trip. So it sounds like the stakes are pretty high to make sure that these carbon-free technologies continue to get support, and that support really at the federal level, but also state agencies, policymakers, regulators, other key stakeholders. There's a lot of folks who are, are really involved in seeing these projects through. That's absolutely right. And, and in fact, as you know, Brian, it's not just at the federal government level, right? But then that funding is going to go down to the state uh, and state agencies, and it's important that it flow through there. Uh, not And states are in different levels of readiness for that. So that's uh, another important factor uh, in, in moving this forward. And, and of course, without all of this, as Jerry said, uh, the clean energy transition slows way down. Uh, and the less of this you have, uh, the slower that is, all of which would mean getting to net zero by 2050 uh, becomes harder and harder to achieve. So there is quite a bit at stake on that and, and the need to flow this through. And 
just on the last point the jury was talking about, not only do you need all of these technologies for the various reasons he outlined, but we need all of them because different places of the country are going to probably utilize different mixes of these technologies. And it won't just all be everyone working with, you know, X, Y, and Z, but you'll need some areas maybe more uh, able to rely on carbon capture and storage, maybe both for storing energy, as Jerry was just talking about, as well as storing carbon uh, permanently. Uh, other parts may be able to rely more on renewable energy. There'll be a mix of resources needed across the country. And so really important that we advance all of these technologies because you're going to need different types of solutions for different types of geography, both here and, of course, globally. And the more we can develop here, the more we can be a leader in some of that global deployment as well. The only thing I'd add is that this technology development and policy push uh, is going to play out over a 30-year period. And our ability to see forward much further than perhaps a decade is pretty limited. And so we're going to learn a lot over the next five to 10 years about which technologies have matured up well and don't need any support uh, any further. And those that are struggling and new ones that have come into the mix that, that policymakers need to encourage and support. That'll be a uh, sort of a changing menu uh, as time moves forward. But something I think as a country and an industry, we need to be good at recognizing and, and being ready to encourage. Thank you both so much for for joining us today. It's exciting to see all the work that CFDI continues to do and to learn a little bit more about the new Institute for the Energy Transition. So I know in theory, Jerry, you you retired. So thank you for continuing to to be busy and help guide this this really critical, important work that's going on this decade. No, it's fun to do it. Uh, Tom Kuhn asked, and I said, this is one area I'd be happy to keep contributing to. So been a lot of fun to work with the EI team on this. Brian, thanks again for the opportunity to be here. It, it's a real pleasure to be working with leaders like Jerry on this important mission. And that's our show for today. Thank you for listening and come back next week to hear more from experts and industry leaders who are talking about the innovative ways electric companies are building a cleaner, smarter, stronger energy future for the customers and communities they serve. You can subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam, or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Electric Perspectives. I'm your host, Brian Real. Thanks for listening.